You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness, and thank you for your grace. And I pray you bless this time and uh, multiply the minutes, for they are short. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting a four-week series. Um, it's going to be about audience. Okay, what, do you, what does that mean? You know, what am I talking about? Um, so basically, we all live with an audience. Uh, you know, basically, whether it's real or imaginary, we live as if there is a group of people that are evaluating us, judging us. And so, you know, you, when you think about possibly, you know, going to the grocery store without putting on your makeup or, uh, you know, and you're like, oh, no, no, I got to put on a little bit. Like, there is an audience. It is the audience that could potentially be at the Piggly Wiggly that could evaluate you for going out in public without your makeup on. Right? That's, that's the, to give you a little sense of, of what we're talking about with audience. So I want to start here. The, the kind of paradigm I'm going to be talking about is audience of grace and audience of judgment. And uh, I'm going to introduce those concepts this week, and then we're going to have three different series where we're going to look at prevalent audiences in the life of children, um, particularly teenagers. Uh, next week will be the audience of, of parents. Oh, I'm not sure if that's next week or two weeks. But anyhow, the three talks are going to be audience of social media, audience of parents, and then finally I'm going to do four weeks from now, audience of the future, basically how your child lives as if the uh, admissions officers at Vanderbilt are sitting beside them every moment of their day, evaluating everything they do, so audience of the future. Uh, so I'm going to start out with this, and um, uh, start out with this um, video, here's our old buddy. And I just, this is some of Simon Cowell's best insults from uh, American Idol, like in the, the, the auditions, people who got up there who were really bad. And I just want you to think about the existential experience of the person who's auditioning who gets told these things by uh, Simon. as a wedding singer? I was. <laughs> How many did you divorce? If I were you, I'd phone up the war department, volunteer your services, because you just invented a new form of torture. I'll give you a tip for future auditions. Don't. I don't mean to be unkind, but you have one of the worst singing voices possibly in Miami. Um, I don't want to be rude, but you could be the worst singer in New York. Don't take this personally, but... Oh, oh, please. No, I mean it. You're one of the worst singers I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's awful. It's, it's bizarre. Okay, fair enough. So it's, it's a no? No. No. Why do you say it as I think? Oh, it looked like the before, during, and after of Weight Watchers. You're the one I've seen in my dreams. You want to hear the chorus? No, I couldn't hear anymore. Okay. Best singer in America. Oh, yeah. Right. I can honestly say you are the worst singer in America. Truthfully, that's my first audition. Well, I'm not surprised you should be the last. That way. I don't know what to say. I do. Sarah, there is only one resemblance you have to Mariah Carey, and that is your hair. You have one of the worst voices I've ever heard. Okay, all right, so you're kind of getting the point here. I mean, he is just an awful human being. Um, all right, so 
So now think about this. Think about, you know, here you are, you're very exposed, you're very vulnerable, you sing in front of an audience, right? I, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine singing in front of an audience. Uh, and yet, the reaction you get is you get told, like, you are the worst singer I've ever heard. You are awful, you know, right? So there's this judgment. And so think about, uh, knowing that that's the potential, think about when you're in front of an audience, the amount of fear and anxiety uh, and exposure that you sense. And so um, part of the reason that we're talking about uh, audience is because one of my kind of big convictions or kind of realizations is that I feel like most of us live in a shame honor culture. Uh, normally you associate that with Eastern culture, but I think particularly in suburban situations, uh, generally the, the social dynamic is that of a shame honor culture. And here, two, the two primary components of shame honor culture are, number one, there are only two options. Uh, to be perfect or to be great or failure. If you're not great, then you are inadequate and you're not worthy. So we hear this all the time from kids like, oh, I'm just like a B student or I'm just like an A, B student or I make all A's, but I don't take any advanced classes. It's like, what? You know that? I mean, A's and B's are good, right? There's nothing, that's nothing to be ashamed of, but they feel a sense of like shame that they don't make all A's and all A pluses in all advanced and AP classes. Um, or, um, or the second component of a shame honor culture is you feel as if you live your life in front of an audience. Uh, so you feel like the things that you do are being evaluated and judged by the group, the community that you live in. And so, um, so you know, I've, I've kind of learned all about this from a lot of my Asian American friends who are in, in uh, ministry in those contexts. And so, they, you know, the, the deal is if you're an Asian American child and you mess up, or you, um, you know, aren't, don't make all A's. Uh, they call a B, if you're an Asian American kid, they call a B the Asian F. Um, is the parents, the thing that the parents say is, um, that's not, that's, that's not me being like inappropriate. Like that's, that's what, that's, that's like a commonly held joke amongst my friends who are Asian American. Um, and, uh, but basically like the thing that the parents say to the kids are, how could you make us look like this? Like, how could you make us look so bad with this implicit uh, understanding that there's an audience watching what we do? That audience is the group or the community. And, you know, you are going to be assessed and judged by them, and you better measure up. Uh, and so with that being said, um, this concept of audience is so important to understand in the life of your kids because there, there are a number of factors um, that create tons and tons of anxiety for kids related to audience. So for one, um, developmentally speaking, and this kind of starts to happen in early adolescence and it really magnifies uh, when a child is say like 12 or 13 or 14, there's this concept that social psychologists call the imaginary audience. David Elkin is the, um, uh, an, a, a, he, he coined that term back in the 1960s, and this is how he defined it. So the basic premise of the topic is that people who are experiencing imaginary audience feel as though their behavior or actions are the main focus of other people's attention. It is defined as how willing a child is to reveal alternative forms of, of themselves. The imaginary audience is a psychological concept common to the adolescent stage of human development. It refers to the belief that a person is under constant close observation by peers, family, and strangers. This imaginary audience is proposed to account for a variety of adolescent behaviors and experiences such as heightened self-consciousness, distortions of other views of the self, 
and the tendency towards conformity and fads. This, this act stems from the concept of egocentrism in adolescence. So basically, you can remember being a middle schooler and you had a zit. And that next day, you go, you're in the lunchroom and you are convinced that everyone is looking at your zit, right? And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, we think, us, oh, come on, you're not that important, no one's watching, but it is so real to a kid. Uh, it's because they have just entered into this developmental phase where they are, for the first time, aware that other people can formulate an opinion of them. And so at, at, with that new conceptualization that they've gained, there's now this exaggerated sense of self-consciousness. They, they understand that people can do that, and that's true, people can formulate opinions of you, but because it's so new and just it's just a reality or phenomenon of early adolescence, they think that everyone is watching them, right? You walk down the hall and some girls are giggling and you're, cons you're just convinced that they're laughing at you, even though they haven't noticed you, they don't know what your name is. Uh, but that's just a reality. It's something you have to be aware of in terms of the anxiety that kids feel and to be compassionate with them. It's, it's, gonna be, it's really hard to talk them out of that. So then add to that the cultural realities that if kids live in a suburban area uh, and they live in a shame honor culture where there's already that sense of like, I live my life before the group. They're already aware of audience already. And then the third part of it, which is really wrecking kids, social media. Uh, because they really are living their life in front of an audience of hundreds of people, right? And they really are getting likes and comments and all this kind of stuff. They really are being evaluated. This is why I recommend, and sorry for you parents who have kids in seventh and ninth grade and you've already crossed the threshold. This is why I recommend that you don't allow a child to have Instagram uh, before the 10th grade because they already are experiencing this heightened anxiety uh, related to audience. And if they have Instagram, it validates their irrational and exaggerated sense of audience. And so you see there's a major spike in teen anxiety around 2011-12 when um, there's kind of widespread adoption of Instagram uh, amongst teenagers, and, and there's some argue that there's a correlation between the two. Um, now, something we have to be aware of, too, is that uh, as adults, we certainly live before an audience, right? Uh, and this is particularly like at the psychological level. We all live, live in front of an audience in that way. So, you know, you may, <coughs> in your parenting or how you dress or what kind of work you do or how you keep your house, you know, your critical mom, even though she lives, you know, 10 hours away, your critical mom, you know, is sitting there judging you, psychologically speaking, when your house is a total mess. Oh my gosh, what, and, that, and that's part of why we feel this sense of, you know, like shame and anxiety when our house is a mess, even though no one's going to see it, except ourselves, because like, oh my goodness, there is this psychological audience um, that is critiquing what I'm doing, even though they can't see me. And, and so, all that to be, all that being said, um, you know, the the kind of the 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 question of anxiety that so many families experience is, what would people think? What would people think if they knew this about me, or this about our family, or this about my kids, or this about our financial situation? And so there is this uh, very real anxiety that people live live with, and it's again, it's it's uh, characteristic of a shame on our culture. And with that being said, a lot of times people will not address problems. They have a child who's really struggling, but they don't want to send them to get help. Or uh, they have, they're having marital problems, but they don't want to go to counseling. Or they're having financial problems, but they don't want to make cutbacks, all because they are afraid of the audience of judgment. And so um, there's this really, um, there's this really uh, 
well, sorry, let me go back a, a, a spot here. Uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus is kind of addressing this, this issue of audience to the Pharisees. Um, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will not have you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He goes on to say the same thing about prayer. Don't go pray in public. Uh, Basically, what he's saying is don't live for a human audience. You know, he's, he's talking about like your spiritual life. Don't be doing living your spiritual life, your religious life, to impress people. Don't live with a human audience. And then he, you know, he closes this with the Lord's Prayer. And the first thing he says in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father, who art in heaven. So basically, there's a shift from a human audience to a divine audience. How is that divine audience defined as our Father, our gracious and loving Father? And so, you know, as we, I think, you know, as we're kind of working through this talk here, um, something to be aware of is, one, we, we want to, ourselves, be aware of our audience. Like, who is the audience that makes us so anxious? Is it a, is it a cultural or social audience? Is it a social media audience? We feel the pressure to portray our families in a perfect way on Instagram. Um, is it a psychological audience? Do we still live with so much fear and anxiety because of the, audi- the audience that our parents were or, or childhood influences were? Um, we want to be aware of our audience. And two, we want to learn to repent and turn away from that and live under the audience of one. And so this, um, uh, there's a, a quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. His name is Carson Wentz, and he's uh, a, a very solid, committed Christian. And um, he, he's, and he's very good. He was the number two pick in the NFL draft a few years ago. But he, set, he started a foundation called Audience of One, AO1. And so this, this is what he re- writes on the website about the, the foundation of this model. He says, uh, audience of One was a motto I picked up early in my career. I finally put it on my body as a constant reminder to live with the Lord as my only audience. Whether I'm playing football or whatever I'm doing, I do it with the Lord as my audience. Okay, so basically we want to think about living our life with the audience of grace. Like the Lord is the audience of grace and turn away from the audience of judgment. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're going to do it in our own lives. We also want to try to guide our kids in that because they're so self-conscious. They're so worried about what everybody thinks. And so ultimately, the only thing that's really going to give them a sense of peace is to have an audience of grace, an audience that's not judging them, that's not scrutinizing them. And that the only real audience of grace is God the Father because of the gospel, because Jesus has died for our sins, Jesus has washed away anything that is you know, imperfect or inadequate about us, the Lord, through the merits of Christ, looks upon us with approval. That's not to say everything we do he approves of, but in terms of us as a person, like his affection uh, and his affirmation is constantly, that is constantly his disposition towards us. So we're going to look at Luke 7. That's the, the back half of your worksheet. Man, they're cute, aren't they? Hey, Bonnie. Hey, Charlie. Um, hey. Oh, my goodness. Ann Carl. He is just so cute. Okay. All right. Side note. I was on press. Um, we, we do have an audience, folks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're in Luke chapter 7. Great story. And uh, you know, in Luke 7, basically, in this section of Luke, the, um, the question that's being answered by Luke is, who is Jesus? And so you have different stories where like Jesus performs a miracle, Jesus shows his authority, 
over the demons. Jesus throws his authority over death, raises someone from the dead. And here you see the story of this woman who's a prostitute coming in uh, to a gathering where Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees. And so I'm just going to read through line by line Luke 7. And what you're going to see here is this woman has been freed because she knows Jesus as an audience of grace. Uh, She can walk into a uh, situation of intense judgment um, without being afraid uh, because she uh, she has this audience of grace, Jesus, um, that she's living before. So starting in, in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. So um, so keep in mind here, you know, Jesus is not terribly loved by the Pharisees. They're very judgmental. Um, but Jesus goes and he has fellowship with them. He eats with them. And so you can see Jesus, I think one thing to point out here is a lot of times we think that Jesus is just gracious to uh, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and you know the people who mess up really bad. We don't necessarily think that Jesus is actually gracious to people who are judgmental. But Jesus is actually gracious to them too. Now he does call them out a lot. Um, but here the fact that, that he's entering into the house and having fellowship with them uh, tells us something. And so you'd have to think that he might, I mean, Jesus doesn't have anxiety because he's perfectly unified with the Father and he's God. But at the human level, you'd have to think that um, going to this meeting, there's, you know, he's anticipating an audience of judgment because they're evaluating Jesus. And uh, I can remember when I was a, I taught high school in the inner city uh, and the, 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 there were two other women I taught with and they just hated me. <laughs> um, I just, they hate, they hated, I mean, I just, what I represented. I was teaching in an inner city school. I was this really preppy white kid who just finished his master's degree from Wake Forest. And uh, they just, they just, they hated my guts. And they were very explicit about that. Um, and so we'd have, uh, they did, they, I mean, they pretty much said it in those terms. And um, I think it was more like, we hate everything that you represent. Uh, and so we'd have like, you know, department meeting, you know, every once a month. And I mean, like going to that department meeting was just like tied in knots, you know, uh, because they just did not like me at all. Uh, but Jesus, is, Jesus goes in. So uh, verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city, he was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So when it says she's a woman of the city, this means she's a prostitute. And it says she's a sinner. Well, obviously, everyone's a sinner, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. But what this means is basically her sin was like very publicly salient and, and flagrant. And so, um, so with that being said, she had, she had a reputation. Um, but she goes into um, the Pharisee's house. And so it says, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So notice this, this posture of humility. She's bowing before Jesus. She's standing behind him. Um, and she is wetting his feet with her tears and wipe the, wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head. And so I think one thing to notice here is, um, you know, it would be a, such a publicly shameful thing uh, to put your hair down as a woman in that culture. That's just not something you'd ever do uh, in front of a group of people. You know, it'd kind of be like bringing your kids to the Advent in their pajamas on a Sunday morning, right? (laughs) What could be more shameful? No, (laughs) half joke, right? Half joke. Um, But, you know, what is it? This woman has this incredible sense of freedom. And part of her freedom is she knows that she's a sinner. Like, 
she's, there, you know, she's clear on that. She's not pretending that she doesn't have problems. She's not pretending that she's perfect. Uh, she's not pretending that she's not a sinner. And so I think part of having the sense of freedom, of um, this freedom in terms of an audience of judgment, is just recognizing that, yeah, I am, yeah I'm not perfect. Yeah, I am a sinner, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not a, I am a flawed parent, you know. <laughs> if I were, if I were, uh, we don't live in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and, so, um, and so just kind of owning that. So there's a freeing thing about confessing your sin. There's a freeing thing about just being honest about how not perfect you are. And it just takes so much of the air out of that pressure-filled balloon of needing to feel like you've got to win people's approval uh, and you've got to, um, to yeah, to, to, earn, um, to earn their approval. So, um, so with that being said, uh, she comes to Jesus with this, this sense of humility. All right, so verse 39, Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All right, so look at how they are judging at two different levels. First, they're judging Jesus. Jesus, you're clearly not a legitimate prophet. Because if you were a legitimate prophet, you would not let that woman touch you. You would not associate with that woman because she is a prostitute. And she is bad, right? And then, um, then so she's judging, they're judging Jesus and they're judging the woman at the same time. And so what do we notice, kind of contrasting with what we know about the woman, what do we notice about them? Are they particularly aware of their own sin? Like we know theologically, the reality is that they're just as sinful as that woman. They're just a, they have fallen just as far, far short of the glory of God um, as this prostitute, and that's true of all of us. Like there, there are no, there's no grading on the curve. You're either perfect or not, and none of us are perfect. So it's, it's all we're all we've all fallen short and are all on the same level. And so in terms of thinking about us not wanting to be an audience of judgment for other people or an audience of judgment for our kids. It is extremely important for us to constantly be remembering our own sin and to be remembering that, you know, we see our kids do, you know, silly things or stupid things or demonstrate really bad behavior. It is a really healthy thing as a parent to go revisit how obnoxious you were as a kid. You know, it is, it is helpful for me to recognize that the behaviors that my two, four, and six-year-old demonstrate in terms of not cleaning up after themselves that I was like worse than them at age 18 uh, than they are now, right? And so, um, but, you know, when I'm like all mad and harsh and, you know, and, and frustrated with my kids, uh, you know, I'm kind of, uh, Joe Gibbs has this great quote, never get mad at a four-year-old for acting like a four-year-old, right? Don't get mad at a two-year-old for acting like a two-year-old, you know? And so, you know, if I could kind of live in this awareness of like, I was so sloppy and I was so just completely um, obnoxious about ignoring my parents when they wanted me to clean up after myself the entire time I lived in their house. Maybe I'd be a little bit more compassionate with my kids, a little more patient, um, you know, in terms of getting, you know, them being messy or whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, so in order for us to be an audience of grace, uh, we, have to under- we have to die to our own our own sin and, and be, be, have that sense of humility. So verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, 
I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Something to notice here is that Jesus, in the way he says is the tone is actually like really in Greek. It's, it's kind and sincere. He's not like, Simon, I got something to tell you. It's not like that. And Simon is actually sincere in the way he responds. Uh, and so it says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Something to, to know about this story is you have two debtors. One has a much greater debt than the other. But both of these, in terms of the economics of that day, neither of them could pay this debt. This would have been an insurmountable, unrecoverable amount of debt for either of these people. Uh, so think, keep in mind, like for the, the lesser debt would have been like two years of salary. And most of these people live paycheck to paycheck. Like they barely got by. So the idea of being able to save enough to recover two years of salary is an impossibility. Um, and so, yes, maybe this, maybe the prostitute did, publicly speaking, have a greater debt, but uh, the other person who had the smaller debt still, it was impossible for him to pay, uh, which is important when we think about the gospel because like, the, o- the only way we can pay the debt we owe to God is through receiving the righteousness of Christ. And so, um, and so what, what Jesus is, is trying to, uh, sh- to communicate to Simon is the reason this woman has come in here and is worshiping me at my feet, is cleaning my feet with her hair, uh, is weeping. Because I mean, we have to, we, 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 prob- we don't know this for certain, but most likely this woman had had an encounter with Jesus before this story where Jesus had proclaimed you know, the gospel, uh, sorry, the grace and the mercy of God to her. And so she, her coming in here is a reaction to probably a previous interaction. We don't know that, but that's pre- most commentaries kind of agree that makes sense. Um, and so he's trying to say, look, Simon, like the more aware you are of your own sin, the more grateful you are for the grace and mercy you've received uh, from God through Christ. So he says, um, then turning toward the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, basically he's showing like, look, Simon, this woman loves me deeply. She loves God deeply. And you, 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 don't, you, know, you don't as much as give me a glass of water when I come into the room. And so um, just, just kind of, let me ask you this. Do you think this woman would be an audience of judgment to anybody? Like, no way, Jose. You know, I would imagine this woman would be a very safe, approachable person who'd be extremely merciful. She'd be the kind of person that you'd want to share your secrets with. Or that if you had like a, you know, some deep, dark problem that, that you just couldn't come clean with, that you're not going to go to Simon. You're going to go to this woman, right? Because she herself is, is, has this sense of humility and she uh, grieves her own sin and has clearly been changed by the grace of God. And so just to kind of uh, buttress that point, that the more we know our sin, the more we know God's deep grace for us, the more we kind of become an audience of grace uh, to the people around us, but particularly to our children. So he says, finally, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many. Jesus does not ignore the fact that this woman was a sinner um, and that you know she had, she had deep problems. They are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? This was Jesus is basically claiming to be God. When Jesus says that he has the power and the authority to forgive sins, 
He is, that is a claim, I am divine, I'm God. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I know this can be a little confusing because it says um, this woman, her sins are forgiven because she loved much. Her love for Jesus is a outward manifestation of her faith in Jesus. She has received the grace of Jesus, and so she loves Jesus. And so he's not saying that she loved me, like through her performance she is saved. He comes back and says her faith has saved her, and her love is an outward demonstration and validation of that saving faith she has. So, um, so with that being said, um, with that being said, uh, let's look to kind of close here at the audience of judgment versus the audience of grace, um, and how it is that these things uh, free us. Because again, going back to the practical thing, we want to be aware of the audience whether that's the audience that our kids have, they're afraid of these people at school, or they're, um, they're, there's a teacher that, that makes them feel anxious, um, they're, whether it's social, technological, whatever it is. We want to be aware of that audience, and we want to leave our, lead our kids to an audience of grace in God the Father. And hopefully, by God's grace, we can be an audience of grace for them as well. Uh, but first, the, the Pharisees, the audience of judgment, all they can see is other people. All they can see is the sins and the flaws of other people. There's no introspection with the Pharisees. Um, there's no compassion um, because they're so busy. Uh, they're so busy judging everybody else. You know, if you um, uh, if you're ever if you've ever been around a, like a kind of a fundamentalist Christian environment, um, honestly, whether it's a liberal fundamentalist environment or a conservative fundamentalist environment, in both sectors, uh, they're always talking about the problems out there, like all oh, those people in the world, or oh that group, or oh so on and so forth. They're always talking about the problems out there. There's never acknowledgement of the problem here. Uh, and, and so with that being said, uh, that's just natural for an audience of judgment. Don't want to acknowledge our own problems. Um, and, you know, I, I think something for us that's, that's really important, this is part of why counselors and uh, psychologists are valuable, is to deconstruct, like, our psychological audience, because we all have one. You know, you, you may notice there may be things like, uh, hypothetically, uh, you're a person who gets really anxious when you're going to be late, and maybe it is that you got shamed a lot as a kid uh, for being late or for being the last one out the door. Um, you know, that's a psychological audience at play there. But the audience of judgment uh, basically is always evaluating people conditionally, always evaluating people based on performance. Notice that you know the way that the Pharisees talked about um, talked about the prostitute in a subhuman way. Uh, I mean, they, they, it was loud and clear, this woman is not worthy. She's not worthy of being in this house. She's not worthy of touching Jesus, this teacher. Uh, she's not worthy. And so basically, they view worthiness as something that is earned by performance um, rather than something that is inherent to any person just by virtue of the fact that they're made in the image of God or worthiness with of worthiness of relationship of God that comes by receiving his grace. And so that is the Lord as an audience of grace does not uh, does not evaluate um, our worthiness based on our performance, um, how we look, how we behave, our moral or immoral behavior. Um, he evaluates us based on the life and the death of Jesus. And that's what enables the Lord uh, to have this disposition of grace and mercy um, towards us. And so, um, finally, when we talk about this audience of grace, uh, that some of this will be repetitive, but first, how is it that we live before an audience of grace? The first is to know our own sin. Like, that's, how is it the woman is able to enter to, well, sorry, let me take a step back. 
you know, think about the anxiety this woman feels, feels uh, going into this house that you would expect that she feels, right? There's no way I'd go into the house if I were that woman, <laughs> you know? Uh, and we all have environments like that where we're really anxious to go in because we're afraid of judgment. Um, and sadly, so many people feel that way about, you know, that's their experience with church. Is, uh, they have they've grown up in an environment where all they heard every week was, you know, do this, do this, do this, and you're not enough, and da 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 da, da and all this judgment. And so they, they're, you know, so many people, uh, because their church does not preach the gospel of grace, for them, their association with church is an audience of judgment. They don't want to go. Those people are hypocrites. They're just like the Pharisees. Uh, and that's going to happen if you don't acknowledge that you are, we're all sinners and that God's grace is our only hope. Um, but she is clear on her sin, and that's what that's one of the things that enables her to enter into that environment. The other thing is, what is her attention focused on? I mean, she weren't thinking about anybody else. The only thing she's thinking about is Jesus. Uh, I mean, she is, you know, she's just totally unconscious of the other people around because she is, she loves Jesus so much. She's so enamored with Christ. And so, you know, part of, uh, part of living with, you know, repenting from living before an audience of man, a technological audience, a sociological audience, or psychological audience, whatever it is, and that that audience of judgment, and it's always, the audience of man is always an audience of judgment for the most part, Um, and turning to an audience of grace before God is, first off, remembering that audience, but secondly, loving the Lord Jesus. Like, um, you know, you just think about how she, what gives her this courage and this freedom is that she is just enchanted and enamored with Christ himself. And so loving and worshiping the Lord, um, it frees us. Uh, and it frees us from this audience of judgment. And um, yeah, sounds like the, this class time is over. I'm going to finish with this one, uh, this one little uh, video clip. Anybody ever seen About a Boy, this movie? It's great. It's Hugh Grant. So to, just to finish here, the story, this little boy, this is, this is going to make you cringe. This little boy, his mom is depressed, and he thinks his mom is suicidal. And he wants to try to make her happy. He's an only child, single parent. And she, um, so he thinks that if he sings her favorite song at the class talent show, that that'll make her happy, right? And so you'll see the audience of judgment see the audience of judgment and how he's able to go in there and sing, sing very, very poorly. Um, oh, this is not going to work. Oh, maybe it's not. All right. Oh, well. <laughs> Go watch it on YouTube. Heck of a, it's a really good movie. But anyhow, basically, you know, all of his classmates are making fun of him. You're rubbish. You're terrible. And even though it's very misguided, the little boy is up there singing and able to face the audience of judgment because he's, he loves his mom. You know, he loves his mom and he's, you know, trying to, again, in a very misguided way, trying to serve her. Uh, and so anyhow, a lot of a lot of the freedom we can have from this audience of judgment is a, a self-forgetfulness. Like we are so enamored with loving the Lord that we're just not so focused on ourselves and what everybody else thinks. So let me pray for us. And um, yeah. Jesus, thanks for uh, your grace for us, and thank you that you're an audience of grace for us. And help us to walk in that freedom and peace. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.